I'm Tafria Jemian. Welcome to Yeah, a show where we talk about young adult lit and what it can teach us at any age. This is our book club, and you're invited. Yeah! This week, we have a special episode. We're interviewing, re-interviewing, in fact, Ben Philippe. Ben Philippe is the author of two YA novels, The Field Guide to the North American Teenager, which won the William C. Morris Award, and Charming as a Verb. He's also the author of Sure, I'll Be Your Black Friend, Notes from the Other Side of the Fist Bump, a nonfiction book coming out in April 2021. Ben was born in Haiti, raised in Sherbrooke, Quebec, and Montreal, and now lives in New York City, where he teaches film studies and screenwriting at Barnard College. Ben, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me again. <laughs> yeah, this is your our first author that we've had back a second time, uh, and I'm very excited to talk to you a little bit about your second YA novel and also your upcoming nonfiction book, because uh, we're just going to cover everything while we have you here. Nice. Awesome. So first, uh, but let's start with YA, because this is a YA podcast, in name at least. I don't know why I said that. We literally only review YA books. Like a weird dig, but not at me, but at your own work. <laughs> I guess we did We did just like do a, an episode that was just talking about the history of witchcraft, but that's like an unusual departure. And that was just me having been inside for a really long time. <laughs> so can you tell me a little bit about the experience of writing your second book? and how it feels different from writing. Because we had you on right after you'd written your first book. So we talked a lot about writing first books. Absolutely. Um, in my case, I was really lucky that uh, when I sold my first book, it was a two book contract. So I always knew there would be a second book that would sort of have to be produced. And I'd been thinking about it for a while. And, you know, authors always say that like the second book is a lot harder than the first one. And I was like, that can't be right. Look at Stephen King, like, no. And I'm afraid it's very true. The second one was a huge pain in the butt. In fact, there's like a version of it that's fully written out there, but it was kind of the same premise, different sort of events transpired around the same two characters of Henry and Corinne. And it was just a very bad draft. And I know it was a very bad draft because when it was sent to my editors, like they waited a few days to get back to me and then they scheduled a call and then they were trying to give me notes like, well, we think some things can move around. We can sort of like make this work. I just asked, I'm like, you think it's a bad story, right? And they're like, yeah, I should start over. Yeah. And then I ended up starting over, which was what I needed to do at that point. That's kind of a big process. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. And I think normally I'm someone who gets like really not paranoid, but sort of like gets really in my own head about this yeah. stuff. And there's a version of the story where I would be like really angry at them and like, oh, I wasted 10 months. But for me, it was a huge sigh of relief mm -hmm. because I knew that the first draft wasn't the correct version of the story, if that makes sense. Do you think you like needed to write the first draft to get to the second one? I mean, that's sort of what I want to tell myself, but I'm sure there's a, there's a world that's not too far away where I just like get my expletive together and write a good first draft the first time around. <laughs> um, I think it's because I was really trying to sort of hit a clock of like, it took me this long to write the first one. So it's going to take me this long to write this one without realizing that 
when it's your first novel, you have all this time to think about it. And so get ready for the story. And my first uh, book wasn't meant to be autobiographical, but like the main character, Norris, is very much my unfiltered voice, mm -hmm. a little heightened in some sense. Uh, whereas this one, Henry, is way more fictional and way more of his own being. So I think there were all these little factors that made it that the first uh, swing out the gate was a very bad one. So you said that Norris was kind of your voice through a character. And this is actually something I wanted to ask about because Norris has, you've said, has some similarities to you. And um, Henry is applying to Columbia, which is the school you went to in New York. Um, I'm just curious about how much your own experience informs your characters and kind of more broadly, how far does writing what you know take you in writing? I think writing what you know is really helpful to me in that I can get at some semblance of emotional accuracy. I very much know the feeling of getting your acceptance letter to Columbia. And, you know, my circumstances were completely different from Henry's, but it was a moment that it's like in my brain forever. So I could write around that in a very specific way that I think if I was making it like, oh, Henry wants to go to Harvard. Oh, Harvard is very famous, but I've never been to Harvard. I, I have no emotional attachment to Harvard, so it was it would have just been a word. Mm -hmm. So by putting little details that are lifted from my life, I think I can, as a writer, I can see the scene more clearly. Mm -hmm. uh, in this, in the book, the two main characters end up in Montreal for a few chapters, and that wasn't in the first version. Um, and just sort of being able to write home grounded me as a writer, which made I think made the writing sort of work and spark a little, a little bit more. So I think putting a little bit of my own experience in everything is always something I aim to do. Uh, in, the, in the case of the first book, Kill Get to the North American Teenager, I really thought I was writing a fully fictional character. I thought like, oh, I'm going to write moody, snarky, um, thinks he's better than everyone, little prick. And then everyone was very quick to tell me that, no, actually, this was very autobiographical. So I had to come to terms with that. It's always really affirming, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like Henry, the protagonist of this book, Charming as a Verb, uh, I purposefully made him really good looking. Uh, he's very tall and very good looking, and that's sort of part of his charm. No one's come forward to say that, like, hey, wow, you really you really put all of yourself in Henry. I think like they just because he's so good looking, they sort of like just assume, oh, that's clearly a fictional character. <laughs> Well, you know, I just felt awkward saying it. But no. <laughs> I have to say, you mentioned going to Montreal. This is like an aside. This isn't in my notes. But the the part of the book where uh, Henry and Corinne go to Montreal was so evocative for me because as a teenager, I would go to Montreal from Boston, like just for fun. And it was like really like I didn't take the train. I took the Greyhound. But like it was really that experience of like getting to the central the like Gare Centrale and getting off and like going up into the, the city was like so evocative. So I'm glad you put that scene in. Uh, uh, I'm very familiar with the Greyhound. I think I take the train. Well, I used to take the train when the world was in a better state. Uh, <laughs> to sort of go to Montreal from Montreal to New York uh, back and forth. Uh, I'm familiar with a greyhound and there's like no beauty in taking a greyhound for eight hours. It's just abysmal. People have little Tupperware of food like, oh, you roasted fish. Sure. It's 2 a.m. Please take it out. Like that, 
that's the Greyhound experience. You hear a click and it's like, oh, nail clipping, excellent. Um, whereas the train, like, it cuts the Wi-Fi, the views are amazing. There's something kind of like, I always feel like, ooh, I'm taking the train. I'm such a grown up when I take the train. But it's like 12 hours, isn't it, from New York to Montreal by train? Yep, it's like 11, 40 minutes. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's 12 hours. It's, it's like, very long. Because um, they go through every small town in, in upstate New York. It's also like more comfortable than the bus. I think the big difference, and people who sort of like cross the border um, via cars will know this, is that if you take the bus, you have to get off at the border to sort of go through the immigration proceedings. And if you're on a train, they come up on the train and they go from seat to seat. And I always feel like, yeah, I'm going to lean back with my passport ready and then be served an, a welcome wave into or out of the country that always feels like more comfortable than having to take all your bags and then stand in line in the cold or the heat and then get back on the bus. It's just, I, this is now an anti-Greyhound uh, podcast because I did not enjoy those experiences. Yeah, I stopped taking the Greyhound, I think around the time I had my first kid. I was just like, no, I'm not doing that anymore. I, I did my time. And the train is a little longer. It's actually cheaper. Like okay. the Greyhound is 80 bucks from New York to Montreal whereas like the Amtrak is $69 okay it's just very very long so you need to bring laptop books podcast everything I'm gonna remember this for uh the far distant future yeah <laughs> when society reopens and we're yeah. in silver towers yeah but I think you like this is pro tip pro tip from two uh American slash Canadian residents the train is the easiest way to cross the border it is okay. it is so much more comfortable way better than the, the bus it's even better than the airport because you don't have to like go through the huge 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 lines yeah something about airports really stresses me out um and not just sort of like you know iron birds in the sky just like the process I think it's having to take off your shoes that's yeah. like a particular sort of like ritualistic humiliation that I just don't like. <laughs> it, is, it feels very intimate. It's like, okay, yeah. now I'm going to like walk in my sock feet through your little, through your archway. <laughs> I, 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 I prefer the train. I get to keep my shoes on in the train. Well, you know, I think that's all we really need. <laughs> Having me. We'll see you on the train hour. <laughs> this is the train podcast, a new podcast. <laughs> ben and I just talk about trains. All right. So you've said with writing the field guide to the North American teenager uh, that you didn't really think of it as a YA novel while you were writing it. Would you say the same as charming of charming as a verb or did you have genre more in mind when you were writing it? And how did that change things? If so, it's a good question. I, I definitely I was more aware of what YA entails for the second one, just because the first one had uh, come out. And I think I was a little nervous about it being put in direct conversation mm -hmm. uh, with Field Guide, sort of, oh, the second book, like, if if I make jokes, are people going to say that it's the exact same voice as Field Guide? So I very much knew I was writing a YA book and that it was my second YA book, which is why I wanted to change the setting completely. Mm -hmm. So Henry goes to, like, this magnet school in the middle of Manhattan as opposed to... Uh, a typical public high school in Austin, Texas, which was the case of the first book. Um, and I really wanted to focus on different aspects of the two characters' lives. Because um, there's a risk that, you know, I'm the same person writing both, but there's a risk that they might come off really, really similar. And in the case of Henry, um, I think I leaned in more into the fact that he's this child of immigrants. I don't think the mother of Norris in the first book 
like her first generation, second generation, third generation status is ever really explicitly mentioned. Um, but in the case of Henry, like his parents are Haitian. He was born, they came over to America while his mother was pregnant. So all of his parents' expectations are very much on him. Uh, and I think that made him different from Norris in that there's a lightness to how Norris um, from Field Guy just engages with the world. He's very much in his head. He's very selfish. And I mean, I love him, but he sort of processes everything through his own eye. Uh, whereas in the case of Henry, Henry is an extrovert, but he also sort of knows that everything he's doing has to serve his parents as well. Mm -hmm. So when he's applying to go to Ivy League colleges, he knows that, oh, this is the family plan. This is the family dream. And even if I maybe want something different, there's no sort of like stepping away from this path because it wasn't just my path. Mm -hmm. um, his dad's a janitor, his mom um, is now reinventing herself in a new career, but they're both, they're, you know, fairly poor. So I think he has a lot more on his shoulders. So that was one of the key differences between the two. Yeah, the motivations of the two characters are really different. And I think that that absolutely kind of shines through in the stories. With Field Guide, you were writing um, the story of a Canadian kid going to the States, which is an experience you had personally. And with Charming as a Verb, you write about an American kid going to Canada. And I was really struck by how well you wrote that. Like how like Henry hasn't even thought about Canada. Like he hasn't even considered Canada as a place. And when he goes there, he's like, whoa, this is just like a whole country above us. <laughs> and I'd love to hear a little bit about like, like how you managed to write an American character like so thoroughly like what kind of influences did you draw from because um, I, I think you did a very good job of like making your character not know stuff that you know oh thank you um, I think that partially comes from my experience of being a Canadian in America and the questions people ask me about Canada are truly wild it ranges from "Ooh, did you have moose in your backyard when you were young to fully like Oh God, is it a paradise because it's not under Trump? I want to move there. Um, so people have, Americans have like a very, even when it's like a positive thing, they have a very simplified idea of what Canada is. And I know Canada to be not that different from America. Like, you know, obviously different countries, but you know, same entertainment. We know what Game of Thrones is in Canada. It's not like this faraway land and sort of being able to write a character that comes to that realization uh, felt really, really freeing and kind of fun too. And, you know, since he is the child of immigrants, there's always that aspirational idea that like if you're an immigrant and you leave your country, you're going to pursue the American dream. And that kind of locks you into thinking only of America as an option. Mm -hmm. In the case of Henry, I mean, he was born in the state, so he doesn't know anything else, but then he visits Canada. And one of the first differences between the United States and Canada is the wild difference in cost for higher education. And it just felt like it made complete sense. McGill is an amazing school. Shit, I'm spoiling a lot, I'm sorry. Um, Canada has amazing schools. <laughs> I I feel like if you're talking about going to Montreal and also higher education and also Americans, the fact that McGill is involved is is not too 
much it of a spoiler. It could be Ucam. <laughs> do, do Americans know about Concordia or Ucam? No, they don't. No, they I don't. don't. <laughs> I think it sort of stops at McGill, unfortunately. But like, I was thinking about this the other day. Like, Montreal has like so many colleges. Like, even there's a campus for like the University of Sherbrooke. Uh, I lived in Sherbrooke for a while when I was younger. Um, it's just a very young, very collegey town, and I kind of fudged some facts in portraying McGill as having all the best programs that Henry exactly needed. Whereas, like, I think the program that Henry chooses to follow would be more at home at Concordia or a smaller school. But I needed it to be recognizable. Yeah, I think I think I may have. I think that was my only quibble when we reviewed it. I was just like, McGill doesn't have design. I went to McGill. If McGill had had design, I would have taken design. No, um, <laughs> economics and pre-med yeah. and architecture. Architecture, right? They do have a all good architecture program. McGill were all pre-med kids. Yeah. Um, I was like, oh, what if they have a fun new campus that's like all about design? That's just really convenient. Yeah, yeah. It was I love I love this. I love that for McGill. Um I think we should manifest that for McGill. But yes, as an American kid who moved to Montreal to go to McGill, I, I agree with everything you just said. So- yeah, so, sorry, you are I am as bad as you at like following your thought all the way through. I think what I was trying to say was that like um the difference in cost between the two yes. countries is truly astronomical it is. like a year in college in america will cost your family eighty thousand mm-hmm. dollars and people sort of just go through the process as if there's no other option yeah. so they end up like i got a degree i got an undergraduate degree in poetry and it cost my family a quarter of a million dollars and now i'm gonna pay this off until i'm 45. Mm-hmm. Well, mcgill is not you know it doesn't cost fifty dollars to attend mcgill but it's less than $8,000 per year. It's an amazing, amazing school. The city's really, really diverse. So I think that for Henry, when he comes there, he's like, oh, well, this is kind of perfect. And I think it's I think it's a really good mission to make sure that, you know, American teenagers know that Canada is a cheaper option. Yeah. And that all, no, I mean, this is a drastic statement, but that like higher education is a media fantasy a mm. lot of the time, that especially for young people. I remember being young and being at home and just like Henry, um, I really, really wanted to go to school in, I really wanted to go to an Ivy League school mm-hmm. because all the shows I watched made sure to like hammer home the fact that Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Columbia, Stanford, like those are the schools. And that once you get there, there are going to be frat parties, there are going to be roommates. It's an entire way of life and experience that I think can be very aspirational for mm-hmm. people so much so that they lose sense of why they're going there. So I think Henry was definitely like the vessel for all those thoughts. Absolutely. So this year, well, I'm assuming this year, you can correct me if I'm not right about that, but you made the shift from writing fiction to writing your first nonfiction book. Can you tell me a little bit about your upcoming book, which is called Sure, I'll Be Your Black Friend? Yes, it's called Sure, I'll Be Your Black Friend from Harper Perennial. Um, It's a collection of essays? Um, it's an autobiographical collection of essays. And I guess it's sort of because when I was writing uh, Norris, the story was fictional, but it was my unfiltered voice. And when I was writing Henry, the story was fictional and it wasn't my voice. I was writing a different type of character. I kind of wanted to go back to see what happened when I wrote just directly in my voice. That like, I didn't have to sort of change the names of people. I could just write my own experience and 
if I'm snarky, then it's Ben being snarky, not Norris. If I'm angry, it's Ben being angry, not Henry. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really freeing, especially with the year we've had uh, in the United States about sort of race and uh, not just America, in the world, really. And yeah, it turned into, oh, I hate being a 31-year-old that has the memoir. I feel like such a douche. Uh, but like, yeah, it ended up covering my life, sort of being born in Haiti, raised in Canada, and then jumping over to America for college and being here since. And just sort of like, I've been the black friend to a lot of white people. And I love my friends. I love my white friends. I love my friends of different ethnicities. Um, but it comes with a very sort of like, specific uh, set of expectations. Uh, when I was in high school, I was known as an Oreo because I could tell you every jutsu in Naruto, but I didn't really know rap music all that well. So people were saying, oh, you're an Oreo. You're white on the, out- on the inside and black on the outside. And now that I'm older, that I've sort of like read more books about it, I'm like, that's kind of messed up that if you, your inner race is declared to be something else because of your interests um especially if you're like uh oh i remember once i got really good grades in high school and someone called me a rotten banana which is yeah sort of asian on the inside and black on the outside i'm like geez that those are those are some colorful metaphors um but i just i don't know i just wanted to vent and write and maybe drag some people i've met over the years in the book and it just it it was really freeing to just write without having to sort of like hide uh my voice and i hope people like it i suspect they might not (laughs) but i'm very grateful i got to write it sorry if harper perennial loses money i know i'm really looking forward to reading it so there's at least one one purchase (laughs) (laughs) that's all the the questions i had for you but do you have anything that you want to like plug or talk about or no no other books i'm i've started to write for tv recently which is really fun but i don't have like thing to plug uh, the show won't be on the air for like two years maybe like five years with the whole you know um corona covid situation um no other books to plug i'm happy to answer anything i'm happy to tell you which ya authors are jerks um, uh, sure. You know what? Uh, release your, dra- your drag list. I haven't met any YA author who is a jerk. It's very strange. The moment I do, I will be sure to write it down somewhere so I have a story. And I promise a story to that effect. They've all been very, very nice people. Maybe I'm the jerk. I don't know. There has to be, there has to be like a, a little pool of assholes out there. Well, there's J.K. Rowling. Yeah. Yeah, that came out of nowhere. Jesus Christ, why? <laughs> you, it, it was like, sometimes I feel like we're in a simulation, like the whole, you know, simulation matrix thing. And that feels like a clunker line of coding, right? It just feels like it came out of nowhere. It's so disheartening. Um, it's so unnecessary. <laughs> I know, I know. You have all the money in the world. There are kids who are seven years old and there are kids who are like 40 years old who worship you let's say you had all these hurtful views just keep them to yourself just keep them to yourself start like an anonymous twitter account where you're like an anime character and just like filter it that way why 
why put that next to your name? And there are people who are like, I'm, I, I'm trans and a big part of my coming to terms with my identity was like reading those books and sort of like seeing that the world is more than it's sort of defined as being. And that's just a really bummer. All you can do is like, sorry about your Ravenclaw tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> that's going to be your next book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just, I, I don't know. That one's a bummer. I, yeah, I'll say I've never met her. I'm sure she enjoys flowers and cats, but yeah, let's, let's throw that one in a jerk bucket. Yeah. I actually forgot a question. We had a question uh, from 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 our editor, Tom Zalatni, who wants to know uh, what your favorite Pokemon is. I don't trust an Eevee. I don't know why. Mm. I just, there's too much happening with an Eevee. It can become anything, which means it's really nothing. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, there's something, I don't trust the Eevee. Uh, I find Pikachu ugly. I just do. I just always thought it was ugly. Its body makes no sense. Like, if you're going to go with a cute electric rat, I would go for Pichu. Um, no, oh, I, I know who my favorite Pokemon is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's Charmeleon. Like, mm-hmm. the, the teenage form before the Charizard. Mm-hmm. Um, if you ever watch, like, the actual show, he's Ash's first sassy Pokemon. Because, like, he's not sort of, like, disobedient like Charizard yet, but he's, like, yeah, I don't feel like hugging you right now. I won the battle, so I'm going to cross my arms and look away. I think I was like seven years old. I was like, oh, that's cool. I like that. And he just looks cool. He looks yeah. like a mini dragon. I think Charizard is a lot like this gigantic, like the nearest Targaryen dragon. So, you know, Charmeleon is like, oh, you can live in my house. So, yeah, he's my favorite. A little yeah. teenage dude, fire dragon. I endorse this. Charmeleon is a good one. Thank you. I don't... Mm-hmm. We can talk about Pokemon for a long time. I think my, my personal account stopped at 151. Okay. I'm one of those people, like, and that's a sign of how old I am because there are people who, who grow up thinking, oh, no, there are 450 Pokemon. So I'm like, no, no, no. There are 150 Pokemons, and then there are, like, Nintendo trying to make money. I, yeah. I, if you look at the design, some of the new ones just make... No, that's clearly just... That's a vase. That's a vase. Try to convince me that's a Pokemon. I hate you. Um, <laughs> I, uh, so. I'm i just getting into Pokemon for the first time at nearly oh, 30 wow. years old. I know. I know because I grew up in the woods um, and uh, it's very exciting and I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm into it. So Because I'd, of your child or is this like a self? Because of my partner who asked this question more I think because we started like when I was pregnant I was just tired all the time so I started playing video games for like the first time in my life and one of those video games was Pokemon and then I was like I'm really into this thing where there are like cute little animals that are also immensely powerful so it's kind of exciting to just to discover uh but I've been playing like let's go Eevee like I'm at like six-year-old level like my my six-year-old plays let's go Eevee and then I also play it I mean, it's a really good game. People say that's, oh, no, it's a consumerism, like, gone wild, and that's very true. But, like, mm-hmm. in terms of, like, a role-playing game, it's really, really fun and strategic. And I used to do the thing where, like, when your Pokemon is evolving, you can press a button and it doesn't grow. Oh. So it's, like, it's really, really dark if you think about it. You're sort of, like, binding its feet together so it doesn't swing. It, it stays cute. Yeah. But I had a bunch of, like, level 94 uh, Squirtle. And people Oh, that's just a squirtle, and I would just hyper beam them into oblivion. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I would see see what you were saying about Charmeleon before. I don't super like Charizard, but I really like Charmeleon. So I like the idea of just having an enormously powerful Charmeleon. Yeah, you just it's like freeze him there. No, I love that game, and I used to dabble in light fan fiction, 
And I think like the first like existential bit of fan fiction I wrote was, it was really bad. It was like 500 words, 600 words. But it was like Ash had won, mm-hmm. like he defeated the big four. So he'd won like all the Pokemon badges and stuff. And he was just really unhappy. Mm-hmm. And it was a scene where he releases all his Pokemon and then he captures a Pigeon one, yeah. Pidgeot? Pidgeot. And then he starts all over again. Okay. Um, and then when I found out, I was like, boy, that, that's kind of dark for an 11 year old. Um, my parents were going through a divorce, so I might have like channeled some of that into this. It was just like, start over. Nothing can fulfill you. Just start the journey over again. Don't know why I just shared that story. Yeah. I think we need the uh, the collected Pokemon fanfic works of Ben Philippe. Of Ben Philippe. The people need it. You know what? I mean, Lydia Davis has like a bunch of collections that's just like everything she found on her laptop sort of like edited together. So sure, I'll, I'll release it one day. <laughs> Very bad, but yes, I'll find it. Awesome. I will look forward to that. We will, the people will look forward to it. Well, thank you so much. My pleasure. Uh, for rejoining. This was super fun. I could like definitely continue putting off work by coming up with conversation <laughs> topics. I hope you're doing okay in 2020. Thank you. I hope you're doing okay in 2022. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is what it is. We will outlive it. Someone I... told me that was like, oh, of all the platitudes we've thrown at each other, like the fact that, no, no, you'll outlive 2020 was yeah. a fun one. Yeah, and soon too, which is kind of wild. I'm having like definite, like, emotional ups and downs about the fact that 2020 is almost over yeah like christmas trees are just around the corner like there's no recuperating 2020 at this point like 2020 is a loss yeah Yeah. in my head it's like it it came to april and now it's the elections and now it's gonna be christmas it was a three-month year now it's over yeah Yeah. and i aged like 15 years i have so many gray hairs so many gray hairs (laughs) that sprouted this year never had them before my god God, it's a nightmare. We'll, we'll outlive it. We'll outlive it. We'll outlive it. We will survive. All right. Well, have a good day. <laughs> Thank you so much. I don't, know, I don't know how to end this. I'm like, uh, you know. Name, no one, that's like the thing no one has learned in like seven yep. months, how to end a Zoom call. I mean, I know Even, how to end a Zoom call when I'm on one for work. <laughs> Even when I teach. I'm like, I, I know I press the red button and it all goes away. But like the bye, take care, bye, take care, the back and forth for 20 minutes. I, I'm so bad at it. We'll do it. Let's do it. We'll do it. All right. Bye. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to Yeah. If you want to leave feedback, suggest a book for us to read, or just say hi, send us an email at theyapodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at yapodcast. And individually, I'm at tefferbear. Ben is at gohomeben. If you like the show and want to help us make it even better, consider supporting us on Patreon. You can get all kinds of great perks, including early access to bonus content, shoutouts, guest appearances, and more. Head to patreon.com slash yapodcast to donate. Shoutout to our patrons, Catherine Reshi, Erica Stutchberry, Kat McGuire, Lizzie Tenhove, Chantal Thomas, Matt Dever, Megan Jane, Emily Patton, and Emmett Cameron. We have merch. Hit the merch link in the description of this episode to get some from the fine folks over at TeePublic. You can also always support us for free by leaving a rating and review on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts, subscribing on Spotify, and by sharing this episode with a friend. Special thanks to Great Bear for letting us use their song Jenny's Groove as our theme music. You can find their music for sale at greatbearmusic.bandcamp.com. This episode was produced by Tefra Jenian. That's me, and edited by Tom Zalatni as part of the Upford Network. You can find out about all the great shows on our network 
at upfordnetwork.com. I'm Tom Zalatni, executive producer of the Upford Network and host and producer of Up for Discussion, a podcast about great food and the people who love to make and eat it. But wait, isn't Up for Discussion a comedy podcast? It sure was, but things change. It's a food show now, and it's a very, very good food show. Every week, I dig into a different ingredient, dish, meal, or cuisine with help from friends and guest experts who know way more about this stuff than I do. Do you like food? Of course you do. You're a person. So you will like this show. Go listen to it. Wherever you get your podcasts. Up for discussion. It's a food podcast now. Brought to you by the Upford Network. I'm October Jones, and Hi, this is... I'm fish with legs. I'm a fish with legs. Fish. I'm the elemental creature of water, and I'm here to tell you about my podcast called October Jones and Fish with Legs, starring me and my best friend, <laughs> October Jones. Nailed it. October and Fish is a fictional series that follows me and Fish with Legs as we try to stop an evil two-headed snake from releasing a terrible monster. And make friends, and go on adventures, and get captured a lot, and escape a lot, and encounter racism. And what? And learn very special lessons every third episode. I have not learned a single lesson. Yes, you did. We learned about being friends, and authoritarianism, and colonialism, and how to defeat a giant crab. Authoritarianism? They're in authority for a reason, Fish with Legs. If everyone followed the rules set in place by the human government, then there wouldn't Wait be- for adults and kids. <sighs> New episodes on Mondays. You can find it wherever you find podcasts and, of course, on the Upford website.